the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, Ireland's special branch. Jared Lovett on the Garda unit's turbulent battle with the IRA in the decades after independence. And to begin this evening, a social history of contraception. The lived experiences of people negotiating family planning in modern Ireland. Contraception was the subject of intense controversy in 20th century Ireland. Banned in 1935 and stigmatised by the Catholic Church, it was the focus of some of the most polarised debates in the history of the state. A new book, Contraception and Modern Ireland, a Social History, is the first comprehensive dedicated history of contraception in Ireland from the establishment of the Irish Free State in 1922 right up to the 1990s. It draws on the experiences of Irish citizens through a wide range of archival sources, but also of oral history. The author is Dr Laura Kelly, Senior Lecturer in the History of Health and Medicine at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Laura, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks very much for having me, Miles. Now, let's go back to the 1920s when the state began to place restrictions, not so much on contraception, but on information about uh, contraception with uh, through something called the elegantly titled Evil Literature Committee, established in 1926. Yeah, exactly, Miles. I know it's it's a great title. Um, so, yeah, 1926, the Committee on Evil Literature meets and really they're kind of discussing obscene literature that's circulating in Ireland in the 1920s. And the committee finds out that British birth control propaganda was widely available um, in Ireland at this point in time, particularly in Dublin. So, for example, you could get some of Mary Stopes' booklets in Kearney's bookshop um, in Dublin and also Eason's and Hannah's bookshops in Dublin also have publications on birth control and some advertising materials which were also submitted to the Committee on Evil Literature showed that individuals could obtain contraceptive devices by mail order as well. So really, the Committee on Evil Literature decided to ban any of this kind of indecent or obscene um, literature. And really what this means then is that the law that comes in in 1929, the Censorship of Publications Act, means that a wide range of books and publications could be banned. So not just material on contraception, but even texts that gave very basic information about fertility. Now, you mentioned Mary Stopes, obviously founder of the first birth control clinic in uh, in Britain. In the book, you quote a letter from a 28-year-old Limerick woman who had six children. She wrote to Stopes saying the thought of having any more children would drive me mad. The, the, the book is full of that kind of, of correspondence, that kind of memoir. But tell us a bit about how Mary Stopes responded then to the banning of her publications by the censorship board. Yeah, so um, under the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act, um, as I was saying, all of Mary Stopes' publications were banned. So she was um, very, she was really a very prominent birth control um, campaigner in Britain at the time. Um, But she also published a book in 1931 called Radiant Motherhood. And this was basically giving advice to pregnant women um, about the whole experience of pregnancy um, to ensure that they, you know, had, had a positive and healthy experience. 
And she wrote to the Irish Censorship Board in 1931 to complain that this book had been banned on the grounds of advocating unnatural methods of contraception. But she said that this was unfair because it was really just giving advice to pregnant women about um, the experience of pregnancy. So we don't know what actually happened in this case because there's no kind of detailed reply to her letter. But um, I think her request basically had no effect um, because in 1936, you see a list of books prohibited in the Irish Free State and all of her publications um, are included in that. But at the same time, there definitely were people in Ireland um, who were sympathetic to Mary Stopes' aims. In the late 1920s, I came across some correspondence between Stopes and the owner of a bookshop and a newsagent in Dublin. And he was kind of keeping her informed about what was happening with the Committee on Evil Literature and the kind of developments in Ireland. And also in the late 1930s, I came across a letter from an Irish woman who wrote to Stopes asking if she could meet with her because she was interested in setting up a similar clinic in Ireland as well. Um, You also get lots of Irish doctors writing to Stopes for advice um, on contraception in this period as well. And as you mentioned, the woman um, from Limerick writing to Stopes as well, Miles, like there's dozens of men and women writing to her um, in this period trying to get information about contraception because it's just not available to them in Ireland at the time. Now, in 1935, you have the Criminal Law Amendment Act coming into force, and that is what actually bans the importation of contraceptive devices into Ireland. Did that, in effect, just codify you know, laws on contraception or practice, best practice or worst practice or whatever you want to call it, on contraception? Or was it more impactful than that? Yeah, exactly. So really, the 1935 Act, um, as you said, it bans the import and sale of contraceptives. And I suppose that combined with the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act means that you can't get access to contraception in Ireland um, and you can't get access to any information on contraception either. And what you see after that 1935 legislation is that there is a series of court cases in Ireland um, where people who were found to be guilty of importing or selling contraception um, are dealt with in quite a heavy manner and particularly people who are of non-Irish or um, non-Christian background, um, such as Jewish grocers and chemists, um, who appear to have been particularly targeted by the legislation as well. So there was an element of anti-Semitism involved in all of this? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to give you an example of one case, there was a man called Ivor Cron, who was a Jewish grocer in Dublin. And in 1936, he was summoned before the courts um, on eight counts under the Criminal Law Amendment Act um, for unlawfully keeping contraceptives for sale, for selling them and for importing them. And basically what happened was a 16-year-old boy was arrested in connection with another offence and he was found to have contraceptives on his person and then was asked, well, where did you get these? And basically then it was traced back to Ivor Cron's shop Then in the actual court case, the judge at the time, um, Judge Little, really highlighted Cron's Jewish identity. Um, In his conviction speech, he said that the defendant clearly belonged to a community among whom the Old Testament was revered. And Cron was given a really heavy sentence. Um, He got £200 in fines, um, as well as six months imprisonment with hard labour. And there was an appeal then from Cron later on in 1936, which resulted in the fine being reduced um, to £100, but the prison sentence was, was left to stand. And there's quite a number of these types of cases 
happening in the 30s. And really, I think they have a big effect in deterring individuals um, from engaging with this with this trade and contraceptives. Now, the book draws on oral history interviews that you conducted, not just with activists, but also with with ordinary people. How did you get people to open up about their experiences? Yeah, so I think for a history project like this, um, you can't really understand people's personal experiences in relation to family planning and contraception unless you go and actually speak to them and interview them about their experiences. So basically what I did was I interviewed 103 men and women who were born in Ireland before 1955 um, and I recruited them through going to older people's community groups around Ireland and giving a talk about my research and then inviting people to sign up for a one-to-one interview with me if they were interested in, in talking about their experiences. And what I found was that people were were very open, actually, in talking about this topic. Um, I think it's probably in part due to the fact that, you know, with the recent referendums in Ireland in 2015 um, on marriage equality and obviously the repeal the eighth referendum in 2018, and that combined with the recent discussions in the media around mother and baby homes, I think people are, there's a lot more kind of discussion of these issues in the public arena. So yeah, people were actually quite comfortable um, talking about all of this. And I was very grateful, you know, that people were so open about their experiences. Now, one of the things that you highlight is the role played by women's magazines. If we, you know, you come up to the to the 1960s, for example, uh, yeah. and they are influential in, in getting across the message and getting information out about contraception, aren't they? Yeah, they're really crucial at the time um, because you have to bear in mind in the, you know, the period that I'm looking at, um, there was very little in the way of sex education in Ireland. Um, It was very hard, obviously, with the kind of censorship laws um, to find out any information about contraception. So women's magazines were crucial, particularly Women's Way magazine from the 60s. You know, there's lots of discussion in articles in that magazine around, you know, things like the pill. You've also got journalists like Monica McEnroy are very active in kind of, you know, generating debate really around this issue. But also as well as that, you've got um, problem pages um, to these magazines and they're actually a really useful source of information for women um, and finding out about just basic information about um, fertility, contraception, um, pregnancy and childbirth. But then I suppose on the other side of that coin would be agony ants like Angela McNamara, who would have been, I would have thought, quite influential in prolonging the status quo. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think Angela McNamara, she's a complex figure. Um, On one hand, I think the advice she was given was actually quite in line with with church teachings. You know, she was never actively kind of advocating use of artificial contraception. But I think on the other hand, she was quite an important figure in generating debate around these issues and, you know, in giving talks to secondary schools about sex education. So I think she she did recognise the importance of giving people um, that basic information. And during all this period, how conservative and how influential in that conservatism would the medical profession have been? Yeah, so the medical profession was pretty conservative in general, I would say at the time. It wasn't really an issue that they wanted to get involved in. And I suppose their hands were tied as well, Miles, in terms of the law at the time and in terms of what kind of advice they could um, give women about contraception. 
So one way that women could get around the law in relation to contraception from the early 60s, you could get the pill in Ireland as a cycle regulator. But that basically meant that you had to go to a doctor and say that, you know, you had, you know, menstrual irregularities or irregular periods or really painful periods. And then the doctor might give you the pill for that reason. Um, So I think there was that kind of knowledge of how you could get the pill and what doctors would prescribe the pill was circulated amongst women as well. One of the things you also highlight was the uh, priests who were more sympathetic. Why was that even an issue? I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually. So I suppose in, in 1968, you've got um, Humanae Vitae, the uh, papal encyclical comes out. And basically in the 60s, prior to that, um, there was an expectation that the church might be a bit more, you know, might change its stance in relation to contraception and be a bit more lenient towards it. Um, but really, Humanae Vitae is a disappointment to a lot of Catholics across the world because it kind of reinforces the church's stance on contraception. And then, you know, you do see some priests who really struggle with this, I guess. And one example would be Father James Good, um, who was a priest in Cork. Um, and he was also a lecturer in, in medical ethics um, at UCC. And as soon as Humanae Vitae came out, he actually kind of came out in opposition to it and kind of said, you know, that it was just not really you know, viable um, that people kind of continue to use the rhythm method. He was just a, a lot more kind of progressive, I suppose, in, in his views and sympathetic to women's experiences. So he kind of became known in Cork as someone who was a bit more sympathetic on this issue. And I remember one of my interviewees talked about his church being packed because he was known to be sympathetic. And basically, as a result of his outspoken views and the fact that he was known to be given women um, who were using birth control, absolution and confession, um, he was called before the bishop, um, Lucy in Cork, and was uh, suspended from his priestly duties and then later moved um, to Kenya in 1975 to work as a missionary. So, yeah, there, the kind of information on priests like like good was spread amongst women as well, um, because I think the confession box was often a place where priests were reinforcing this idea that, you know, contraception was wrong and that women were expected um, to have as many children as they could. So the priests that were sympathetic were, were quite rare, I guess. And I suppose just as uh, Father James Good was supposed to reinforce the message of someone like Bishop Lucy, somebody else who would have been preaching that same message would have been Archbishop McQuaid, John Charles McQuaid in Dublin, who would have been ultra supportive of uh, Humanae Vitae. You've been to the Dublin Diocesan Archive, you've seen correspondence that uh, McQuaid would have received on this subject. Was it mostly pats on the back or was there some criticism of his stance? Yeah, I, I think it's important to to recognise here that a lot of people um, were very much supportive of the church's stance at the time and, and agreed with it. So, yeah, there's lots of correspondence in the Dublin Diocesan Archive um, of people writing to McQuaid saying, you know, well done, um, because McQuaid came out with, you know, a series of pastorals in relation to this issue after Humana Vitae. But there were also some letters from um, men and women who disagreed with McQuaid's stance on the issue. Um, You know, I came across one letter of a woman um, who was planning to get married and she just wrote to McQuaid saying, I don't understand why you have to be, you know, so outspoken and strict on this issue. So there, there was some dissension. Not everyone agreed with this. 
I think, though, for priests who did disagree with this and who were being outspoken about it, um, there definitely were consequences. Now, the contraceptive train episode of 1971 obviously was important, would be seen as important in activism in relation to this issue. There's a, there's also there's a delightfully farcical element, I suppose, to that. There's a performance element to that. How important was that? How crucial was that in, in deflating the controversy? Yeah, I think the contraceptive train was was really a really important moment. Um, when you think about the publicity it generated, and a lot of people I interviewed really remembered that moment. And I, I suppose 1971, when that event happens, is also important in terms of the kind of legal movement on this issue. Um, you know, you've uh, got Mary Robinson trying to get bills passed through the Senate on the issue, but you've also got the establishment of family planning clinics around this time as well. So I think it's it's really, really important as a kind of cultural moment because I suppose it's the first time that there's this big protest around the issue. Um, and then I suppose the farcical element of it, as you mentioned, uh, you know, this group of women, and I think Nell McCrafty's memoirs are amazing in, mm. in discussing this. Um, you know, she talks about them going into this chemist shop in, in Belfast and, you know, a lot of the women in the group had never even seen contraceptives before. Um, a lot of them didn't realise you needed, you know, a prescription for the pill and things like that. And then I suppose it, it kind of highlights the fear that they felt as well on the train back, the consequences that this action could have, the fear that they might be arrested, the fear that they might lose their jobs, the fear of, you know, what would their mothers say about it. So I think it's it's a really important moment um, and the publicity it generates is really crucial in opening up the debate on the issue. Now, you also looked at a movement which uh, began subsequent to the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, and that was Irish Women United. Tell us about that. Yeah, Irish Women United. Um, there's, I suppose, less awareness of um, some of their activities, but they were a really important feminist group, which were founded in 1975. And they're a bit different to the Irish Women's Liberation Movement in that they're predominantly a group of women who are involved in socialist and radical politics. And they're also kind of a younger age group. A lot of them would have been kind of early 20s, that kind of age. Um, and there's also a significant element of lesbian women um, in the group as well. And I think, you know, they undertake a lot more kind of direct action um, campaigns around the contraception issue. So they set up something called the Contraception Action Programme in spring 1976. And really, that's the campaign specifically for the legalisation of contraception and the Contraception Action Programme is really important because it highlights the class um, and geographic uh, disparities in terms of access to contraception, but also the kind of health concerns around contraception. The fact that, you know, a lot of women in Ireland were um, getting the pill from their doctors because that was the only kind of option available to them to get the pill as a cycle regulator. So they're really important. And some of their activities as well are really imaginative for the time. You know, they they set up a caravan which sold condoms and distributed leaflets in places such as like Ballymun or Rahoon in Galway and circulated information about sympathetic doctors. But they also set up a shop as well in Dublin um, in 1978 called Contraceptives Unlimited. And that sold um, non-medical contraceptives such as condoms, jellies, creams and caps. So it, it's really kind of trying to challenge the law in quite creative ways. Now, as we know, or certainly as anybody who lived through that period knows, social change in Ireland did not come through Bolaire and it did not come through Irish politicians or Irish politics. It came from our EEC membership. It also came through the courts. 
tell me about the McGee case and how crucial that was. Yeah, so the McGee case is really important. I suppose it kind of highlights the issues that ordinary women in Ireland were experiencing at the time. Um, you know, May McGee and her husband um, had been told by the doctor that if she had any more children, she could potentially die. So she takes this case after, you know, ordering spermicidal uh, jelly and it being, you know, taken by by customs. Um, so I think the McGee case is really crucial there because it just highlights um, the real kind of problems that women were experiencing um, in the 70s in Ireland. And, you know, the I suppose the power that lay in the hands of ordinary Irish women as well. Now, you also interviewed a lot of people involved in family planning clinics. How did they challenge the law? What kind of risks did they take? People involved in the family planning clinics were really crucial in, I suppose, providing um, contraception on the ground to people. And they took significant risks. So, for example, I interviewed some members of the Galway Family Planning Clinic, which was set up in 1977. And some of the people involved with that, you know, they would go over um, to England to get contraception and then fly back on the plane, you know, hiding it in their suitcases and these kinds of things. So they were taking really significant risks. But also, I think the personal and career risks of, you know, being seen to be involved in this movement at the time as well um, is really important to remember um, because it was hugely controversial. But also, I suppose, the risk from kind of the local communities at the time as well. Um, You know, if you take the Cork Family Planning Clinic, um, that was set up in 1974 by Dr. Edgar Ritchie. And, you know, a letter was read out in all of the masses um, in the diocese that year from Cornelius Lucy, the Bishop of Cork and Ross, you know, telling them about the clinic and that this was really wrong, you know. So there there was a kind of like quite a lot of backlash, I think, for people who were being seen to be involved in this movement. Now, the legislative outcome of the McGee case comes in, um, well, quite a few years afterwards, in 1979, when Jack Lynch, I would say with a certain amount of elan, hands the nettle over to Charles Hawhey and you have the Planning Act, Family Planning Act of 1979, which he, of course, famously described as an Irish solution to an Irish problem. But it wasn't much of a solution to any problems, really, was it? No, definitely not. And, you know, the same problems in terms of access really remain. Um, So like the 1979 Act was very restrictive um, because of its stipulation that contraception could only be obtained for bona fide family planning purposes. So that was obviously widely interpreted as meaning that only married couples could access it. And also, I mean, things like condoms, for example, you couldn't get them in, you know, a shop or in a chemist or in a petrol station like you can today. You you know, you needed a prescription for condoms at this point as well. And there was also an issue then with chemists and with doctors as well, that some chemists wouldn't actually dispense contraception. Some doctors wouldn't prescribe contraception. So particularly in rural areas, so some parts of Ireland, you know, for example, in Kerry, it was reported in the 80s that only nine out of 40 chemists actually stocked non-medical contraceptives like condoms at the time. Um, so those kind of challenges uh, that people experienced in terms of access still remained um, from the introduction of this act. And what kind of a difference did uh, Barry Desmond, the Labour Party Minister for Health, what did his amending legislation in the mid 80s, what impact did that have? Yeah, I think that had a big impact um, in 1985, the amendment to the Act. Um, so basically that meant that condoms could be um, sold in licensed premises, so places like chemists or family planning clinics. 
The only problem with that, though, was that uh, there was still kind of a sense that you had to be married to access them. And there was still a sense that you had to be legally you had to be over 18. So, for example, for young people, um, there was no real way of getting access to contraception. Which, of course, prompts the question, how important was the AIDS crisis in making condoms more widely available? And is that what eventually forces the hand of legislators? Yeah, I think the AIDS crisis is crucial in all of this. Um, But I suppose what I'd argue really is that it's the kind of activism that takes place in the late 80s and early 90s um, that's most important. Um, So, you know, you've got the condom counter, which was set up by the IFPA youth group um, in the Virgin Megastore in Dublin in February 1988. And that's basically trying to kind of challenge the law around where contraceptives could be sold. So I think that's a really important action. And again, it generates huge media attention around the issue. Um, But you've also got a short direct action campaign called Condom Sense in 1992, where activists installed condom vending machines in pubs and nightclubs around Ireland. And really, they're kind of trying to argue that condoms were essential for public health during the AIDS crisis. Um, So I think it is very important, but I think it's the activism that really, you know, highlights the issue. Well, the book is called Contraception and Modern Ireland, A Social History. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, It is obviously available in print, but it's also available. This is great. It's available uh, to be read for free online as a PDF on the uh, Cambridge University Press website. Thanks to help from the Wellcome Trust, who funded the research uh, project. Uh, The author is my guest, Dr. Laura Kelly. Laura, many thanks indeed for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Miles. After the break... We'll be hearing about the history of Ireland's special branch and their turbulent battle with the IRA in the decades after independence. Stay with us. A gang of police thugs, renegades and perverted types. These were just some of the ways the Garda special branch were described by their enemies within the anti-treaty IRA. The special branch of Angarda Siakana, which still exists today, of course, as the special detective unit, traces its origins to the CID or Criminal Investigation Department of the Civil War period. This squad of detectives was set up in August 1922. They were based at Oriel House at the corner of Westland Row and Fenian Street in Dublin. A recently published book called Ireland's Special Branch, the inside story of their battle with the IRA, 1922 to 1947, tells the story of the first few decades of the unit's existence and the detectives who lost their lives during this time. It was a turbulent period marked by regular confrontations with the IRA. The author is Jared Lovett, himself a former member of Ungartha Siakana, who spent the final five years of his policing career in the special branch, retiring in 2004. And uh, Gerard joins me now. You're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. You conceived of this book while you were actually working in the special branch, didn't you? Yes, I was sitting in my office and the thought struck me that there was no book about the special branch. But just to be sure, I went on uh, Amazon.co.uk and the library online records Yes, I found books on the British Special Branch, on the RUC Special Branch, and even the South African Special Branch, but not about the Garda Special Branch. So I said I would take it on. And so began 20 years of research. <laughs> Mind you, I thought starting that it would be two or three or four years, but uh, anyway. Well, you, we can assume, yeah. given that it took 20 years, that it was extremely thorough. Um, tell us about the origins of the of the special branch, because you can really, you can, I suppose you can trace it back to Michael Collins, can't you? 
You can. You see, Michael Collins realised that once the civil war was over, it would not be kosher to have the military on the streets to maintain order. So he knew that an armed section of the Garda Shikana was needed. And the, the uniform Garda Shikana, it was decided that they were to be unarmed. You see, originally they were to be armed with 0.45 revolvers, but after the Garda mutiny, it was decided that the new force would look uncomfortably similar to the RIC. So the uniform force was to be unarmed, mm. but they also had to have an armed cadre of police. And they started in Oriel House, as you said. Now, Oriel House is a, a, a quite a sinister name. It's sort of, if you know anything about the history of the period, it se- tends yes. to send a shiver up the, up the spine. Why was it seen in such a sinister light? You see, the Oriel Housemen, I mean, they quickly had a fearsome reputation. But these were former guerrillas, part of the, uh, the, the Michael Collins execution squad, the, the Twelve Apostles, and also the Dublin Brigade of the IRA. And they were guerrillas, effectively, who now found themselves in an unfamiliar policing role. And they were ruthless. I mean, there's no... I, I decided from the word go that this was not going to be a whitewash. I was going to call it as it happened. And these men now, they had no time for their former colleagues who had opposed the treaty. I mean, something like 80% of the TDs returned in the June 22 elections were pro-treaty. They weren't all common and gay, like the Farmers mm. Party and the Labour Party, and they were also pro-treaty. And they were very annoyed or angry with their former colleagues. And as you know, the bitterness of the civil war was alive and well. And it was time added on, to, to use a sporting metaphor, it was a time added on in the Civil War, effectively. Now, as you say, you don't gloss over the, the thuggish elements of the, yeah. of the special branch. I was curious when I started reading the book, um, you know, does Jared cover, for example, somebody like Charles Dalton? Uh, Charles yes. Dalton, who would have been a member of the intelligence unit during the War of Independence as a teenager, 17, 18 That's years right. of age. Uh, you do. I mean, you again, you don't gloss over his activity. And they were fairly horrendous at times. Yes, I mean, they were involved in numerous killings. Now, in some cases, as I said in the book, it's not clear whether it was the Oriel Housemen or the Free State Army were involved in them. But they were both involved in unauthorised killings. I mean, they were officially, I think, you always hear about 77 executions, the official executions. In fact, it was actually 81 81, 82 maybe. But the special branch, the Oriel Housemen originally, and the intelligence section of the army were also carrying out a few extra ones on the side, about up to 100 possibly during that period. And mm. Dalton would have been responsible for, for some of those, as you, no point, question. as yes. you point out in the book. Yes. And I suppose one of the most notorious incidents then was actually after the, the Civil War was, effect, was effectively over, and that was uh, involving uh, Noel Lamas, Captain Noel Lamas. Yes brother of a future Taoiseach, Sean Lamas. Correct, yeah. I mean, that is the most famous or infamous case of that period. I mean, he was kidnapped off the street in Exchequer Street, I think, on the 3rd of July, 23. But his body wasn't found until three months later on the 12th of October, 23, up in the Dublin mountains. So that was after the dump arms uh, uh, declaration. And with signs of torture on the body. I don't want to be too crass, but the te- his teeth were pulled out and his hair was missing. And Now, some people say it might have been animals. Now, the animals might have 
pulled the hair out, but I doubt if they pulled any teeth out, you know. Uh, so, I mean, and uh, the assumption was that he was a victim of uh, Oriel House or yes, well, Oriel House related activities. Oriel Housemen usually get the blame for it. Yeah. But as I show in the book, they may not have been responsible because an, uh, an army officer, Captain James Murray, actually boasted about doing it afterwards. Now, if that's right or wrong, I have no evidence to say otherwise. Now, there were, however, there were victims within Oriel House itself as well. You go into detail about some of the detectives who were killed. Tell us about Matt Daly, for example. He was yeah, Oriel, Matt Oriel Daly. He was shot somewhere down around Queen Street on the evening of the 22nd of December, 22. A particularly tragic case. He died in hospital a week later, just after Christmas. On the 29th, he died. Now, the sad story there is that he was actually engaged to be married to a lady called Alice Lynch. They were due to marry a week after his death. Now, some years later, she married somebody else. And I met her granddaughter, Orla Murphy, and she kindly gave me his photo, which I have put in the book. But it was a particularly sad case. There were four of the Oriel housemen killed, three of them by the IRA and, and Thomas Fitzgerald by regular criminals. Because obviously the Oriel House, one of the elements of Oriel House was the criminal investigation department. So they weren't just involved in policing political crime. They were supposed to also be involved in policing what we might call ordinary crime. Well, indeed, th that is true. I mean, they, they, they took on Aram Robbery. I mean, Aram Robbery was rife mm. in Dublin in those days. In 1922 alone, believe it or not, there were 479 Arab robberies. Now that's in Ireland or in Dublin, in Dublin alone. In Dublin alone. In Dublin alone. Oh yes. <laughs> I mean that's over one a day. You know. Yeah, I mean post absolutely. offices and shops and businesses and banks and so on. Like uh, like some of it, of course, obviously anti-treaty. Yeah. To now, get finance. You know, the, 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 as you say, they were not known for their legal niceties, uh, and there was no Garda ombudsman to complain to. But citizens did actually take lawsuits, did they not, against the special branch? Later in the 20s, there were lawsuits taken against the special branch and in some cases were awarded compensation. But I came across cases I mentioned in the book where a, a series of, case, of successful cases taken against the special branch where the state paid the, the expenses that were awarded and they paid their legal expenses, which to modern years sounds incredible. It's it, indemnification, basically. Exactly. I mean, they knew they were standing by their men. They knew they were rough and ready and not too bothered by legal niceties, as I, as I said. But they were keeping the government in power. You see, there was a substantial minority of anti-treaty people still around the country, you know. Uh, I want to talk to you about, you know, you mentioned that the, the, the notion of time added on and um, Kevin O'Higgins was a victim of time added on. That's right. But, uh, I mean, tell me about the analogy this, this, that he makes about what the Civil War was all about. It was about eight young men. That's right. And what was going on outside. And wild men outside screaming through the keyholes. That's right. And he, he, he quoted another expression of Cicero in the, in the Dáil, Salus populi suprema lex, the safety of the people is the highest law. And the president, William T. Cosgrave, told the Dáil that he didn't care if they had to execute 10,000 people, that they would do whatever executions were necessary. So this was the atmosphere that the police were operating in. And clearly the government were turning a blind eye if the police decided to carry out a few extra on, on, on official executions because there was never a call for an inquiry or never a condemnation that I could find. Mm. And I did 
a lot of research into this period. 20 years of it. And the assassination then of Kevin O'Higgins in 1927, he was still Justice Minister, I think, when he was uh, assassinated. That's, that's right. The ex- that's the time added on. That's the extra time, as it were. The Civil right. War still alive and kicking. That's right. You see, Kevin O'Higgins was the most hated figure because of he got the blame for the shooting of the four men on the 8th of December 1922. Rory, Dick, Liam and Joe, as they called them. Well, he signed the uh, death warrants. Well, he didn't actually. No. It was Richard Mulcahy signed the death warrants as as head of the army, uh, but he but he normally gets the blame for it yes. for some reason. Well, and exactly. apparently, he was the last to agree to it. Mm. I mean, the others were all for it, and he was. You see, the fact that Rory O'Connor was his best man, no doubt, played heavily on his mind. But I found a source for this. It's quoted in the book that actually Richard Mulcahy he was head of the army, so that he that he signed the death warrants. But fact. it wouldn't have happened but if O'Higgins hadn't hadn't approved of it. Oh, he agreed with it eventually, mm. reluctantly. Yes. So you see, he was shot by IRA men, although it wasn't an IRA killing. As I it showed. was complete opportunism. It was opportunism. The three boys were heading to Wexford in a stolen car, as you do, to go to a GA match when they came across O'Higgins walking along on his own. And they even argued among themselves. That couldn't be O'Higgins. There's, there's nobody with him. And uh, they came back for a second look. Sure enough, O'Higgins. And out they got and all three of them shot him. Now, even though he was shot numerous times, including in the head, he lived for about six hours afterwards, you know. Incredible. Um, now, moving on then into, into the 1930s, we're still in the Commonwealth period. In 1931, Superintendent John Curtin was fatally shot in, in Tipperary. Now, he is somebody who you would not necessarily have thought would have been actively pursuing the, the IRA, but he was. Indeed, he was very active. Now, he wasn't a special branch man. He was a, a regular superintendent in charge of a district in Tipperary town. But he, his detectives, obviously, were, he was to send them out and they prosecuted guys for illegal drilling and so on and so forth from time to time. But the IRA decided he would have to go because he was being too active for their liking. So on the 21st of March, he arrived home at his home, Frysfield House, outside Tipperary Town. And the gates leading to his house, one of the gates was closed across, which was very unusual, which was deliberately done so he'd have to stop and get out to open the gate and he was shot down by several gunmen there and his wife heard the shooting and she comes running out and in fact she was pregnant with twins she gave birth to twins two uh, a month later so on the 18th of April she gave birth to twins but neither of them sadly neither of them survived mm. When de Valera then comes to power in 1932 what is his attitude towards the special branch and what does he decide to do? Well de Valera was a bit, I think he was a bit suspicious of the special branch. And it came to light particularly in August 33. De Valera sacked O'Duffy and he sacked David Nelligan, who was head of the special branch. And O'Duffy was offered the leadership of the Blue Shirts. He didn't found the Blue Shirts, as, mm. you'll, as you'll read at times, he, but he was offered the leadership of it and he took it on. You see, he was a bit of a, a bit of a, a megalomaniac. I think he he actually said one time that he was the third most important man in Europe after Hitler and Mussolini, <laughs> which is a sure sign of uh, a nascent megalomania. Not I think. much of a compliment to Oswald Mosley, but that's, <laughs> little, that's beside the point. But however, he announced that he was going to bring twenty thousand blue shirts on a march to Dublin to the Leinster lawn there, where there was a, a, a cenotaph to Kevin O'Higgins and Arthur Griffith. 
and uh, De Valera took fright. He thought that he was going to do a Mussolini on him. Like, this is the March on Rome. Basically. Like the March on Rome in 1922. So he didn't trust the original special branch, so he brought in, in time, there was 367 of them eventually, but he brought in anti-treaty, his own men, anti-treaty IRA men, as special branch men. And that must have caused tensions within the special of branch. Of course it did, because the special branch were looking out the window, apparently, in Dublin Castle, and they saw these guys that they were chasing and arresting in over the previous few years. And the first lot that were brought in, they got the shortest training course ever known in the history of policing, a 10-minute lecture. They were handed a .45 revolver, 200 rounds of ammunition each, and they were dispatched down to the Dáil to protect it from the march of this 20,000 blue shirts. Mind you, there was never more than 8,000 blue shirts in the country, mm. but O'Duffy announced that he was bringing 20,000 of them. So basically those the special branch men were, here's a revolver, here's 200 rounds of ammunition, go protect the doll. Exactly. Now the next lot got a bit more training. I think they got three days, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but these guys, like, they had no proper police training. Some of them, they didn't comply with the Garda regulations as regards age or height or... So some of them were up to 40 years of age and the maximum at the time, I think, was 26 or 7, something in that. To be enlisted. To be enlisted. Mm. And some of them had even served jail sentences previously. But that did not matter. What did matter, they were loyal to De Valera and they knew how to use a gun. And Mm. they would have also been loyal to Ned Broy, who became Garda Commissioner after O'Duffy. And are these the Broy Harriers, the famous Broy Harriers? You see, there was a a, a pack of hounds known as the Bray Harriers, I believe. And, of course, the nickname stuck very quickly. Bray, 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 Mm. Bray Harriers, you see. So the name stuck. To the present day, even special branch men are called Harriers by their opponents from time to time. When it comes then to later on, to 1939 plus, to the the emergency, the outbreak of World War II in in Europe and uh, our great euphemism, the emergency, the IRA comes back into its own again. It sees an opportunity to undermine the state. And obviously, of course, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, etc. Of course, they took the words out of my mouth. That's correct, yes. So what happens then? They saw this as an opportunity. You see, de Valera had tried to woo the IRA away from the gun and towards the political route, but they weren't biting. So he began a clampdown on the IRA. So once the war started, the special branch was beefed up. There were new men put in charge. And you see, the IRA announced that they were now the lawful government of Ireland. Uh, Tom Maguire, a veteran IRA man, the last surviving member of the Second Dáil in 1922, I believe, handed over authority to the Army Council of the IRA. Ergo, in their own minds, the Army Council were now the lawful government of Ireland with the right to make war. But de Valera, he was even more ruthless than Cosgrave, I, I venture to suggest. Except in one incident, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But um, uh, the famous German spy, Herman Gortz, wasn't particularly impressed with the efficiency of the IRA. Indeed. He told them, you know how to die for Ireland, but how to fight for her, you haven't got the slightest idea, he said. And he said to somebody else that the IRA were the most incompetent lot I have ever met. <laughs> so he wasn't overly impressed with them. But they were still a nuisance, there's no doubt about it, in the, in the early 1940s. And uh, this is where de Valera, I think, proves himself to be just a tad more sentimental than, than, than Kevin O'Higgins. Because in 1940, a special branch detective in Cork, a man called John Roach, Correct. is shot by Thomas Og McCurtain, the son 
of Thomas McCartan, who was uh, uh, murdered in the War of Independence. Uh, he probably should have been executed. He was sentenced to death. But Dev decides no. Yes. You see, that was a very interesting case. You see, he was sentenced to death, as you said. But the night before the execution was carried out, Sean McBride, in a fairly clever move, he went to the High Court to appeal it, knowing well it would be refused, but guessed that the Supreme Court wouldn't have time to hear it on that day, so the execution would be postponed, which it was. So he went to Mountjoy to convey the good news to McCurtain, only to be berated by McCurtain for doing that. He had said goodbye to his family. He had made his peace with God. And now he said, I'll have to go through the whole lot again in two weeks' time. However, in two weeks' time, the Supreme Court rejected his appeal. But meanwhile, there was intense pressure on de Valera to reprieve him. You see, a lot of de Valera's men were colleagues of Thomas McCartan Sr. who fought. And as an addition, an appeal from Cardinal McGrory, I'd say, played heavily on him. Because That's the Cardinal Archbishop of Armagh. Correct. And McCrory and himself, both de Valera and McCrory, were lecturers in Maynooth College in 1912 or thereabouts and knew each other quite well. So de Valera yielded to the pleas and commuted the sentence. But he didn't do it in a number of other cases, did he? He regretted that afterwards and he didn't do it again. Every murder of a policeman where somebody was convicted thereafter was ex- executed like the two detectives who were shot in Ratgar. There was two men executed for that. I mean, within uh, rapidly, the, this shooting in Ratgar was on the 16th of August, 1940. Emergency legislation was passed. This would be tried by the military court. There would be no appeal from the court. Your only chance was if the government commuted it. The government did not commute it and they were executed in Montjoy by firing squad on the 6th of September, 1940. Three weeks after I mean, this was breathtaking. Mm. This was breathtaking. I mean, if somebody was being prosecuted for having a bald tyre, it, w- it would take longer than three weeks. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, somebody who at least, well, certainly went down for taking pot shots at detectives was uh, one Brendan Behan. You Indeed. have a quote from him, by the way, at the back. Of the, <laughs> I can't use one of the words. I can't, sorry, I can't use two of the words, but something, 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 intent on nothing less than grievous bodily harm. You can use your imagination to figure out what the first three words Indeed. were. It's in the back cover of the book when yes, you're buying the book. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But uh, Behan fired the detectives outside Glasnevin Cemetery, 5th of April, 1942. Now, he got 14 years imprisonment for that. But he was released four years later. Even though he got 14 years, there was like an amnesty after the war. A lot of them were, were released. But his account of what happened is a bit somewhat colourful afterwards. The detectives had a hard time trying to find him. And uh, they found him eventually in a house in Blessington Street. But, I mean, Behan gives a very funny account of, of how it happened, how the door burst open as if the devil himself was behind it. And these guys came in. He had some names for them too. But... Um, <laughs> But apparently that was all lies because they discovered what really happened. He was walking along the street. Detectives spotted who he was and they grabbed him and there was no 
struggle or there was nothing I mean, like that. Write, writing fiction was his strong point, so I suppose Indeed, you could uh, let, him, let him away with it. When you joined the special branch yourself in the year 2000, I mean, it had had, uh, never mind the, the, the 20s and 30s and into the 40s, it had a reputation for ruthlessness acquired in the 70s and 80s. You joined in the year 2000. Was there much of a sense when you joined of the history of this branch of Ungarda Shiakona? Well, I was a young recruit in 1971 and two, and I used to be over in the district court and I used to see these special branch tough looking guys coming in with prisoners. And every one of them without fail, when they asked a question by the judge, I don't recognise the court. And I was astonished at this. So I, I took an interest in that part of policing because every one of them said the same thing. They all spoke with northern accents, even if they were from Dublin, it, it seemed to come out in a northern accent. Later, the law was changed and they were brought direct to the Special Criminal Court after, I suppose, from 1974 or five onwards. But I knew a lot of guys who were involved. You see, I, I was told, I, I, you weren't here when it was tough to be here. You know, there, there was peace. The, the Good Friday Agreement had yeah, been I mean, signed. You joined two years after it. the Good Friday Agreement. So it was yeah. after that. But uh, I was uh, most impressed. It was a very interesting section of the Garda Sheikhan. I'd recommend any young guard out there to think about it. It's totally different. I've spent most of my life in uniform, but it was totally different. And dealing with people involved in subversion can be a very interesting experience. I mean, some years earlier, before I was in the special branch, I met a, a farmer, well, he claimed to be a farmer IRA man, he was arrested, who was brought to me into the station when I was the sergeant in charge of the station. And I had a big chat with him. I spoke with him for about half an hour and he told me all about stuff he was involved with, including that he was trained in Libya and how he, they crawled along, they were crawling along the ground carrying rifles and the instructor was firing live ammunition over their heads, you know, to keep their heads Hopefully down. Hopefully over their heads. Well, it was, I think, anyway. But uh, I said to him as a kind of a joke, I said, I'd say you had to change your underpants after that. <laughs> so he, he looked at me and he said, I had to change my underpants several times <laughs> during that week, he says. But... Well, uh, it was a very interesting experience, I must say. Absolutely. Um, and as we said, now called the Special Detective Unit. Well, this book is about the Special Branch. It's called Ireland's Special Branch, the inside story of their battle with the IRA, 1922 to 1947, published by Eastwood Books. The author is my guest, Jared Lovett. Jared, many thanks for joining us on The History Show. Thank you, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark Dwyer and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>